I'm Mark Walsh, and coming up on today's show... The, the way I phrase it is, the Fed created $3 trillion between 2008 and 2014. That's triple the amount of money they'd created in the first century of their existence. So that's 300 years worth of money creation in about four and a half years. Welcome to What's Working in Washington on Federal News Network and streaming as a podcast. It's What's Working in Washington. I'm your host, Mark Walsh, along with producer Tracy Madigan. Today, our guest is Chris Leonard, the author of the book, The Lords of Easy Money, How the Federal Reserve Broke the American Economy. Ladies and gentlemen, that title says it all. It's a fascinating conversation, and here it is. Chris, first of all, welcome to the show. Tell us what the Watchdog Writers Group is. Well, thank you so much. Thanks for having me here. I appreciate this. So I am an investigative reporter. I do work in the 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 field of print, that thing that's still out there, right? Really? What? <laughs> yeah, what is that? Exactly. I don't know. And you know, uh my 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 medium is is books. I had an editor recently describe books to me as being like thought bombs. And 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 I think that that's like the role a book can have is it it goes really deep on a subject, but also puts it in context and can kind of be put into the media ecosystem and, and drive a conversation. So at the Watchdog Writers Group at Mizzou, we're, we're a journalism fellowship program. So we give grants to these authors out there, these investigative reporters, where they can take a year or two off of their day job to write a book and go deep. And then the other side of this program is we hire these young reporters at Mizzou who might be undergraduate students or graduate students, and they act as reporters to work with the authors. So they get this mentorship and this training with the authors, and it helps the authors, you know, have boots on the ground to do more reporting. And we're out there just trying to produce these books uh, and drive forward the public conversation. Well, not to waste our time together, but Mizzou is clearly it's the West Point of, of journalism in, in many people's <laughs> eyes. How did it get that reputation? Well, oh my God, you know, I got to say, I wouldn't be a reporter if it wasn't for Mizzou. I wandered into Mizzou in the late 90s as someone who loved writing, didn't really know much about journalism. And here's why I think Mizzou is different and really matters. They, they call this thing the Missouri method. And, and the idea here is that from the beginning, first of all, it's one of the oldest journalism schools, but from the beginning, the J School actually prints its own newspaper runs its own radio station and runs its own TV station. So the students get in there and they report, you know? So when I didn't know which end was up in the 90s, I just joined the Columbia, Missourian newspaper and started reporting. And I really think, you know this, I mean, that is, that, that's the way you learn this thing. You, you can't learn journalism in a classroom. You only learn it by getting out there, inter interviewing real people, doing stories, getting pushback on your stories, you know? And 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 going through that whole process. And so I think that's what really makes Mizzou stand apart. Well, I'm jealous. I just I, I at 23, I was an anchorman for a CBS TV affiliate in West Virginia, and wow. I made every possible mistake. I used to think about, gee, I wish I'd gone to Mizzou. I would have saved myself <laughs> a lot of agita. Thankfully, it was West Virginia. No disrespect meant, but my mistakes weren't, you know, weren't global in nature. But speaking of global in nature, you have obviously followed the Fed and, and written a book about it that is getting an extraordinary amount of attention. And I think for all of the right reasons and occasionally the wrong, in what the heck, for occasionally the wrong reasons. And yeah. for our listeners, I, they should know that I have known Jerome J. Powell for 
35 years uh, and knew him as, as a, he's a friend of mine. So uh, if I sound biased, I apologize, but I don't think my bias will creep in because I, in my opinion, what you've, what you've done, how you've covered the Fed, how you've predicted its impact on the economy and the daily lives of normal sort of traditional Americans is not necessarily a Jay Powell issue. It's more endemic to the history of the institution and its its progress. And let me start with the, the first question. You you chronicle this guy, I guess Thomas Honig, I think is his name, yeah. who was the one of the one of the Fed, one of the Fed members who uh shocker voted against a motion that they made in the giant, you know, in that giant boardroom they have, which is just an incredible spot. Uh maybe the first time in a thousand years. And Tell our listeners sort of why that happened and what what was his moment that made him swim against the tide uh, that had been going on for decades? It's a great question. That really is like the the seed of this whole book. And if we could rewind a little, like this book starts at that time when Thomas Honig was dissenting and he was a governor uh, or he was was a a president of a regional Fed bank. So he sat on the board or in the boardroom, he made these decisions on the FOMC committee. Okay. Yeah. This whole book is about the central bank's actions between 2010 and really COVID 2021. Right. And it was, it was a decade of extraordinary monetary policy experiments. I mean, the fed really broke the graph of history during that decade. And that's why I wrote the book because I, through my reporting was like, Wow, this this period is is incredibly different from what came before, and it totally transformed our economy. And I was drawn to this guy Thomas Honig because back in 2010, he was the one person who sort of stood up and tried to <clears throat> stop these policies. And and he was a person who had he was an institutionalist. He'd been at the Fed since 1972. He'd been on that uh, that top policy committee called the FOMC since 1991. But he he really cemented his reputation in 2010 by voting no at every single meeting. And he kind of left the Fed being known as the dissenter. And so what was he dissenting against? You know, uh, my book is called The Lords of Easy Money. And, and the subtitle is pretty darn inflammatory, if you ask me. Uh, you know, how the Fed broke the economy, you better. That's a pretty significant statement. What the Fed did for for seven years, starting in really 2008, is they kept interest rates at zero, which was unprecedented. Interest rates usually float at four or five percent. And, and those really are one of the most fundamental and important uh, drivers of our economic system is the, the interest rate set by the Fed, which basically like the price of money. You know, the thing we call a dollar is actually a Federal Reserve note. This central bank was created to not only create our currency, but manage its value. And they do that through interest rates. Okay, so they kept interest rates at zero for seven years, which had never happened before. And at the same time, the Fed engaged this incredible experiment called quantitative easing, which you might have heard that term. It's basically high velocity money creation inside the banking system. The the way I phrase it is the Fed created $3 trillion between 2008 and 2014. That's triple the amount of money they'd created in the first century of their existence. So that's 300 years worth of money creation in about four and a half years. That's 
what I wanted to write about. And 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 Tom Honig, I featured him because he was a guy who stood up and, and said, this is not a wise path. So so that that's eye-popping statistic of 100 years of X and then eight years, 3X. Yes. What do you, if you could delve into the mind of, I guess Bernanke and Greenspan and and uh, and 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 all the Fed chairs during that during that strip, what were they thinking? Great question. I mean, you know, there's what were they thinking, and as a reporter, um, luckily we at least know what they were saying. Uh, the, we've kind of mentioned this, but Fed policy is set by this committee called the Federal Open Markets Committee. When you hear that the Fed raised interest rates, it, it was the action of this committee that meets in secret every six weeks. But after a five-year lag, this committee releases the transcripts of all their debates. Right. So we can actually go back and look at what they were thinking. So the global financial crisis of 2008 was a huge driver of what they were thinking. And then the second driver, to be honest, was sort of, to put it bluntly, the decay of America's democratic institutions. It's not a coincidence that these policies started in 2010, yeah. um, one day after the Tea Party took control of the House of Representatives. And it became clear that our federal government, the, the democratic part of it, the fiscal part of it, Congress and the White House, was not going to have the sort of robust response to the global financial crisis that we saw, for example, back in the 30s with the New Deal. Okay, right. we we were not going to be building the Hoover Dam, uh, launch, you know, reforming the banks, breaking up the banks, doing anything like that. And I think what was going on inside the Fed, while well, we know what was going on, is that Ben Bernanke, the chairman, was determined to err on the side of doing too much as opposed to too little. He was very open to experimenting and doing things they'd never done before, like this money printing. And he kind of kept arguing inside these meetings, look, there are risks to what we're doing. And, and that's what's so interesting to me. You go back and read these debates and multiple people inside this committee were saying, hey, if we print all this money and we put interest rates at zero, it's going to create massive distortions. Incidentally, one of the biggest uh, people who warned about that was Jay Powell in 2013 when he joined the Fed. But well, also, also, if I, I started to break in, but as I recall, wasn't, I think a portion of Bernanke's brain was his, his academic career was researching the Great Depression. And his conclusion was that they didn't do anywhere near enough to flood the, flood the zone, so to speak, in, in, during that time. And that's why the recovery from the Great Depression was so painful and so long. Is that not a fair summary or maybe too simplistic? No, that is dead on that that is exactly right um bernanke was a, a famous scholar of the great depression and had written a lot about the great depression and one of the things that went wrong during the great depression was that our central bank kept the money supply too tight which right. which hindered uh the economic recovery and added to that downturn and and it was this sort of never again idea but if i please could point out one key difference a recovery from the Great Depression was driven by fiscal authority. So that's like uh, taxing and spending authorities like Congress that can put a shovel in somebody's hand, build a bridge, build a school, uh, right. launch a war effort. That's fiscal. The central bank does monetary policy, which is just money printing. 
Yeah. So I, you could print a T-shirt that says, you know, my granddad got the new deal. All I got was this quantitative easing. It's <laughs> sort of like they're they're trying to synthesize a new deal approach by just um, accelerating lending, you know, printing money in the banking system. That was a key difference between QE and and the recovery from the depression. But you nailed it. That That is exactly what Bernanke was talking about was, hey, we're not going to be blamed for being like the central bank of the 1930s. So flooding the zone, and just for our listeners, we're talking with Chris, a fascinating conversation with Chris Leonard. Chris is the author of Lord, The Lords of Easy Money, How the Federal Reserve Broke the American Economy is also uh, the head of the Watchdog Writers Group at the University of Missouri, or Mizzou, as they yeah. call it out there. And Chris, this this idea of, uh, I, I think, and you touch on this a lot in both your interviews and, and, and elsewhere, that most Americans think of the Fed as sitting in front of this giant dial, Right. Kind of like George Jetson, forgive my dating me on entertainment, but George would, of course, go to his factory and push one button and start the machine. But this giant dial in front of them, yet with quantitative easing and, and other tactics, they have impact up, up and down the scale, not just one number that represents the, the cost of capital up and down the, the, uh, up and down the economy, quantitative easing being the, the, being the large version of that. So Chairman Powell's, I think, sustaining quantitative easing, in fact, even growing it, is where some people challenge his his uh, his decisions or his conclusions. If you unfair question, if Janet Yellen had gotten the gig by President Trump, do you think she would have acted differently? No, not not at all. Um, and and the, this is absolutely fascinating. So if we could take it back to the year 2012, when Jay Powell joins the Fed as a governor. He had this benefit of coming in from the private sector. You know, we were kind of talking before that, you know, he was at in the private equity business, but he'd also done terms in government. He was working at the bipartisan policy center. 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 Yeah. And got pulled into the Fed, but he knew markets. And, And so when he comes into the Fed in 2012, he's saying, hey, we've printed trillions of dollars and injected it into the banking system. And that's. What that does is it supercharges asset markets, stocks, bonds, the commercial real estate bonds, you know, you name it. And he's saying, you know, we're going to see a downward correction of these hyper elevated prices if we take the money away or, you know, it's dangerous to keep pumping them up. Janet Yellen, on the other hand, took the opposite view. She uh, had been at the Fed for years, was vice chairwoman under Ben Bernanke, and was an ardent supporter of these programs, meaning quantitative easing, 0% interest rates, very aggressive uh, money printing. And so I, I think it's very fair to say uh, Yellen would have, if, if, if she was different from Powell, she would have been even more aggressive and in, in more quantitative easing, keeping rates lower for longer. What's interesting about Powell that I write about is he came in and was a very vocal critic of these policies, but then sort of accommodated himself to them. And and what he told me was, hey, I saw the research. The data said, in fact, they weren't as these programs weren't as dangerous as I said. Yeah. You know, go ahead. Well, he, he's a believer in research. And, and I, I mentioned that I've known him for a long time and we've talked many, many times about how, you know, he's not the economist, right? He doesn't have the advanced degree in the economy and in, 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 a, in, a, in economics, he's a lawyer, um, but he does believe in research. But listen, we're talking with Chris Leonard. Chris is the author of The Lords of Easy Money, How the Federal Reserve Broke the American Economy. 
It's What's Working in Washington. I'm your host, Mark Waltz, with producer, producer Tracy Madigan. When we return, and I'm psyched, we're going to talk about things like crypto, which is stateless currency, and how that plays into the future of, of uh, state banks. Also, how the SEC and other government agencies in this giant wheel called the federal government, a $4 trillion annual enterprise, affects all these types of decisions. These are the tiny issues that Chris and I are going to discuss when we, we, when we return on What's Working in Washington. a huge thank you to our listeners who put us in touch with some of the best voices in Washington, D.C. and the region. We've been hearing from you through Twitter, LinkedIn, and other direct messaging. On What's Working in Washington, we talk to power players about innovation in the federal government and how businesses in the region are keeping us competitive. We talk to the brains in the nonprofit world, restaurant domain, and next-gen tech. If you know someone we should be talking to on our show, let us know. Keep those ideas coming. And thanks to all of those who stay in touch with us. So bouncing around beyond the Fed, which I, you know, is sort of this, this unknown building there in the middle of D.C. that's incredibly protected and the room where they sit, as you know, the giant leather chairs, it's something out of like a star chamber movie movie set. But there's so many other elements of the United States uh, government that ma that manage or interact with the economy. One is the Securities and Exchange Commission run by Gary Gensler. What, what are some ways that you've seen as you did the book and you pursue the, 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 the role of the Fed and its impact that other agencies, uh, Department of Treasury, SEC, interact with the Fed, any impact they have? Or is the Fed truly a standalone entity that does whatever the hell it wants? Wow. Okay. So first of all, I think it's fair to say the Fed does whatever the hell it wants. That's there you go. a very fair statement. I'll, I'll tell you what really is, is interesting and strikes me is what we're talking about earlier. You've got one realm of the world called monetary policy, which is how many dollars do you create or how many do you take out of the system? It's like filling or uh, reducing the level of a bathtub, the money. Yeah. But then on this other side, you've got all these fiscal authorities which were created after the financial crash of the Great Depression. And that, you know, one of the most important was the Securities and Exchange Commission. Um, and, and then these other regulatory authorities that 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 go after the the structure of the financial markets and the banking system. You know, actual cops on the beat that that try to create transparency or fight fraud, as the case of the SEC. Um or other regulators like the FDIC, which sounds like a very boring institution, but it actually oversees the banks and the health of the banks. This deals with the structure of our banking system. All the Federal Reserve can do is heat or cool the money supply. And, yeah. and, and I guess one reason I'm really going in on this is, is what happened after our great financial crash of 08 is that we really did make a decision not to tamper with the structure of the system. We did not break up Citigroup. We did not break up the big banks. We decided to handle it through uh, money 
creation, monetary policy, just trying to really supercharge that system. And there's actually a lot in the book about this effort to kind of grapple with the too big to fail banks that oversee our, our banking system right now, um, which, you know, they, 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 we're dealing with this right now in this weird environment where we live, where the Fed has raised rates really quickly, and you're seeing these banks fail. Um, and yeah, so, you know, the SEC is actually tasked with the much more difficult job of trying to to manage the system as it works, you know. So let me, you know, when, when I, and this is, I, I love this stuff. I, I think President Obama famously said when he first took office in 08, uh, to the Jamie Diamonds of the world, I'm the only thing standing between you and the pitchforks, right? So, so the so the Vox Populi was, oh my God, these big banks screwed up, and I'm taking it in the in the shorts, and and some would say that they've never really been held to account for what happened, and in fact are doing similar stuff now. So, you know, and and I know that you've touched on the amount of wealth that is concentrated in ridiculously tiny percentages of the United States populace. Absent the Fed, do you see levers that maybe the Jamie Diamonds of the world need to have brought down on them to to make sure they're held to account for their behavior? Without question. Okay, here's something super annoying about me. You talk to me for five minutes. I'm going to be talking about the New Deal just immediately. Let's, Doesn't even let's matter go. what I'm talking about. So let's go. You know, it's such a perfect anecdote you brought up with Obama. Flip the flip the time back to 1932 when FDR became president. The first thing he did was shut down the banks. He called it a bank holiday, but he shut down the banks. He broke up the banks. Um, they they did this thing where they they took the assets that were toxic and put them into a recovery organization. It, it was a totally different approach. And what's so weird is, you know, FDR was like a blue blood elite, right. super rich guy. And whereas Obama was sort of like, you know, born and working class striver who came up through the ranks. And yet when he was the one who confronted uh, Diamond and the like, he he said, you know, I'm going to basically protect you from the pitchforks. Whereas FDR worked on behalf of the pitchforks. Very f weird history. One of the things I write about in the book that's so interesting is that this guy, Tom Honig, who was the dissenter at the Fed, actually ended up becoming vice chairman of the FDIC after his time at the Fed. Wow. And, and this is a conservative guy, small C conservative from small town in Iowa. He brought a plan to town to break up the big banks. You're asking me about levers on Jamie Dimon. Um, the fact that we have never addressed the intense consolidation in our banking industry. And, you know, the 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 way Honig was coming at this was that, look, a bank like JP Morgan has all these guarantees through the FDIC. They're backed by taxpayers. And, and so we should probably try to shield um, what we're uh, responsible for backing. Uh, you know, this gets a little complicated because you remember when we wrote, we repealed that New Deal um, regulation called Glass-Steagall, right? Which allows a bank like J.P. Morgan to do tons of speculative gambling while also being a taxpayer, taxpayer safety net backed FDIC insured bank. Honig was saying we need to split those things apart. So, are there levers of power that um, could be brought to bear on J.P. Morgan? Absolutely, uh, a new Glass-Steagall. 
um, an antitrust approach that would look at um, breaking up consolidation of ownership, you know, with these mega banks um, could be really helpful to the banking system. I completely agree. And I think that many, many do. I just wish there was the legislative will to do that. We have a bit of a lightning round as we start to close out our time together, Chris, but let's go to crypto real quick. I, I think of a stateless currency. I think there's a lot of people, and I'm one of them, thinks it's one of the futures of how we exchange value. Um, what are some what are some of the things that concern you most about crypto in a in a in, I'm asking you to, to to deal with it in a very short period of time here on our show? Lightning round, here's what's fascinating. Let's look at the bit, you know, Bitcoin being kind of like the standard bearer. Yeah. To me, the whole core of the Bitcoin idea is that it's it's like the gold standard by algorithm. There will yeah. only be so many Bitcoin. Whereas you look at the United States dollar and its expansion or reduction is just based on the wisdom of this Fed committee. And, you know, they're obviously hyper printing this money. So I can understand the attraction. What's been interesting to me is that these policies I talk about that the Fed committed, which just dramatically increased asset prices, supercharged the stock market. It also created this roller coaster of, of crypto where yeah. the, the prices have skyrocketed because it's another asset you can invest in and they're crashing. So it's hard to get a read on how valuable this is all going to be. So that's my lightning round. It's very interesting how these um, inflated asset markets have disrupted crypto and, and the future is really yet to be seen as to how that store of value is going to work with these stateless currencies. Well, your crystal ball is something special, Chris Leonard. Chris Leonard, author, professor, and observer, and participant in the financial markets in a way that I think is helping not, the, not only the common man, but our federal government manage it. It's been great to see you. We ask all of our guests, great to hear you too, all of our guests a question at the end. If you rule the world, what would you start happening that isn't, and what would you stop happening that is, or both? What's your answer? Okay, I hate to be a little cliche, but I'm sitting here in Kansas where it's been over 100 degrees for a week. It's brutal. I would accelerate the change off of fossil fuels. My previous book was about the Koch brothers. So I've really studied uh, climate change and global warming. We have got to put this front and center. So I would start planting trees, getting away from fossil fuels and trying to get carbon out of the atmosphere if I ruled the world. I am not sitting in 100 degree weather, but uh, who who needs to look at the global map on temperature to not agree with your with your status? Listen, Chris, it's been fascinating to have you with us. I want to thank you so much for your time. The book, once again, is called The Lords of Easy Money, How the Federal Reserve Broke the American Economy. You are killing it, and I hope you sell a gazillion copies. Thank you so much. I appreciate it. a huge thank you to our listeners who put us in touch with some of the best voices in Washington, D.C. and the region. We've been hearing from you through Twitter, LinkedIn, and other direct messaging. On What's Working in Washington, we talk to power players about innovation in the federal government and how businesses in the region are keeping us competitive. We talk to the brains in the non-profit world, restaurant domain, and next-gen tech. If you know someone we should be talking to on our show, let us know. Keep those ideas coming. And thanks to all of those who stay in touch with us. The team behind What's Working in Washington is a great group. The executive producer and editor is Tracy Madigan. Online content, Anna DeGraff. And that theme music you enjoy? 
performed by the Sunbathers. You've been listening to What's Working in Washington on Federal News Network and streaming as a podcast.